Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 365th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your host, Mason Drummond, my calendar-obsessed co-host, Abe. Abe, how you doing? I think it's kind of unfair of you to call me calendar-obsessed, just because before the show I brought up that, you know, if you listened to an episode of CC every day for a year, you'd be caught up. I mean, not including the episodes that'll come out, but, like, this marks that. Like, it's just 365 days, man. You have one episode for every day of the year. If you start right now... You'll catch up, you know, to us in a year. And then you have some new episodes to listen to. It's just, it's beautiful. It's the perfect cycle. Yeah, by May 24th, 2022, you would be listening to this all over again if you were inspired by uh, <laughs> inspired by the episode number. Or you could not. You could just listen to us every week. We appreciate that, too. Yeah, it would be weird to go back and listen because, you know, some episodes are kind of timeless and some are very time-sensitive, you know? There are episodes like what to play at the GP this weekend during, you know, cons and Tarkir standards. So it'd be an interesting experience for sure. But it's so awesome for us to reach such a, a cool milestone. I mean, 365 is a really, really cool milestone. It was really cool when you pointed that out to me. Um, and I'm really excited for us to have reached this point and to be doing that. What I'm also excited for, though, is talking about our always improving. It's the point of the show. And Abe, how did you improve this week? Uh, I have been digging into this book that's been sitting on my desk for, like, a long time now, probably, like, three or four years, called How to Be a Brilliant Thinker by Paul Sloan. Uh, it was, like, a book that one of my professors at community college recommended to me, and I think actually signed some things out of for the class, so it's more of, like, a get it than a recommendation. Um, but it has a lot of things on how to, like, uh, practice the way that you think and working on the process and the way that you like are handling information and uh, thinking laterally, thinking analytically, solving problems, um, you know, memory tricks and things like that. So I've been taking it like a chapter at a time for the last couple of days because uh, I would like to be a brilliant thinker. And I think it's never a bad time to read these things and be like, oh, yeah, I do that or, oh, I don't do that enough. Really just uh, just work on work on thinking with the brain. Yeah. That's How about you, Mason? Uh, my always improving moment was making sure to give myself some time to enjoy stuff and do things, um, specifically in magic, though. Uh, you know, I, we talked about before how I've been trying to work recently on finishing stuff and trying to be on top of things. And also, you know, kind of I got some 1Ks and stuff probably coming up here soon and, you know, lucky enough to be in that kind of situation. And um, just wanted to, like, play some magic that I enjoy and do stuff like that. So I... Uh, I got the cards for, like, As Foretold uh, in Modern. I just got that. And I just actually arrived in the mail from Oasis Games today. The Inverter stuff for Modern Inverter. Because I, I loved Pioneer Inverter so much. And I have all the cards for the Modern one minus, like, a couple Shelldock Isles and small stuff like that. So I just ordered it because it's like, I don't even play with these cards. Like, I'm not really a Remand, IOK, or Thoughtseize gamer. Like, I don't do that kind of stuff very often. So it's like, I can just get another deck and have something kind of fun to play and enjoy it, you know? So often it gets caught up in like, what's the optimal thing to play and what is the best thing to do? And funny enough, you know, this kind of ties into our main topic today when it comes to deck selection and stuff like that. But sometimes, you know, the, the right choice is just the thing you're going to enjoy and have the most fun with at that point. And I was trying to make sure to do that and keep that in perspective. So, yeah, it's always a huge bonus too when you can just be picking up a bunch of like staples that you'll need for formats and like, you know, it's not like you're never going to cast a Thoughtseize or an Inquisition or a. Uh or a remand ever in your life in some deck that's competitive that's like not too far out of the question it's good to own those cards and when you get to play them in something fun 
like you know at your uh modern weekly or whatever it feels yeah. good yeah, it definitely feels good. It's exciting. And it's one of those things where, you know, I owned those expensive cards like you talked about. And so when the time came to get the cheap ones that I didn't already own for Inverter, it was like 20 bucks basically to get everything I needed for the deck. And, you know, it's kind of cool to have that sort of experience and things like that. And it's one of the, the cool parts of, uh, you know, having stuff and being able to pivot around and whatnot. So it's kind of fun. It's like I get a new video game for 20 bucks or whatever, you know. So that's exciting. Yeah, man, that's that's really cool. I uh, I haven't actually... I don't know that there's going to be like weeklies near me yet. I haven't really looked into that and found anything out. The one place I like was considering going to, I haven't heard anything from. I think they said they might announce something like this week. But I did, after getting vaccinated, get to play some Cube Sealed with uh, some buds mine I hadn't seen in you know a pandemic. So uh, we played some some round robin Cube Sealed, and that was awesome. Uh, Paper Magic's so good. If you if you have been waiting and you're like, am I even going to like Paper Magic anymore? Of course you're going to like Paper Magic. It's the best thing. It's so good. It's really good. It's really fun. It is so satisfying to see the light leave your uh, opponent's eyes. And it's even more fun to see the light into their eyes when they go to OasisGames.com right now and buy the cards they need. You can go to Oasis Games and pre-order your cards for Modern Horizons 2. And you can use code CCMTG at checkout for your first order to get 15% off. And use code would that be good? It's all those words combined in unison. You get four percent back on every order. And now I'll let you pick up some of this fun stuff that you might be wanting to play with. Get some void mirrors, counter the hogax. Abe, I've been informed that it does stop hogax. Modern is healing. We can unban hogax now. It's an exciting time. <laughs> um, That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, head on over to Oasis Games and uh, pick up the stuff you need there. And uh, if you are not someone who is, you know, necessarily interested in playing some paper modern or even paper magic in general, because, you know, you can't or you just really like arena, but you do like to flex on people with your sick, nasty arts and sick, nasty promo sleeves, or, you know, just want want to feel something and, and get a little arena code action, maybe try to get that rare uh like Liliana Avatar or whatever it was that I saw some people talk about months ago, you can go on over to grayvikinggames.com where they will sell you arena codes for exclusive things such as the secret lair uh cosmetics or you know pre-release pack codes. Uh, all the things you could need to spice up your arena account for dollars and not gems. A, a flat price that's easy to get into without feeling like, you know, You've got to grind your daily quests to be able to afford the cosmetics and your daily deal section of the store. All that stuff are us, us arena players are familiar with. You can go over to them and use code CCMTG for 10% off at checkout. It's exciting stuff over there. Another way you can support the show is go to patreon.com slash CCMTG. And one of the perks of being a patron, you get to ask a question like this one. Adrian says, how do you know when your deck is bad in a metagame? Uh, you lose a bunch. Thanks, Adrian. But I guess there's more to this. Uh, how do you know if it's a deck or the pilot? If it's the deck, how do you identify the specific cards and problems that pulls that deck down? And uh, this is a really, I think, great question. It actually, you know, we kind of asked this one a little last minute. We let the ball drop, and Adrian <laughs> picked a, a question that works well with our main topic, so I'm happy to have that happen. And I think that a lot of the time when you're playing a deck... And if you know it's bad for the metagame, it 
I, I know I memed about it, but you will lose a lot more and the losses will feel out of your control and it'll be hard to kind of figure things out. That isn't always the case, but I think that is one kind of clear example. Um, and it's funny because it seems like the obvious answer, right, Abe? That seems like, well, no duh, yeah. idiot. But a lot of the times in Magic, one of the things that we do is we, we overanalyze and we overthink because, you know, when you first start playing, that's your default response is, oh, this deck sucks. That's why I'm losing. And the truth is most likely that Maybe that's the case, but if you've net decked something that's good or like a, a popular deck, it probably has stuff and there's stuff you need to learn about it. But at a certain point, it kind of becomes like, well, there might be stuff that I could still learn about this, but even with all of that, um, this deck is still not going to be good. And if it comes down to kind of the specific cards and situations, um, I think that normally happens more with brews than kind of established decks. Uh, but it can happen with established decks. You kind of have to be paying attention to like, how is this card working? Am I even happy with this card? Am I like, is this a card that I'm wanting in any matchup? When do I need this card? And try to think about and envision situations where the card would be good in play and try to imagine like the dream scenario and kind of work backwards from there. It's like, okay, I play this on two. I named Stomp. My opponent can't do anything. They lose the game, you know, like with Meddling Mage or whatnot, right? Uh, and then kind of become a little bit more unrealistic each time when you're thinking about a card if you can't play a bunch, so... Those would be two little things I have to say. What about you, Abe? Uh, I think that, yeah, a lot of stuff you said is really true. I think that when you can't tell if it's the deck or the pilot or you're unsure, something that helps is uh, to just get an outside perspective. Go see, you know, what's winning. Go watch people who are also playing the same deck as you or, you know, who you think know a lot about the format and ask them about, like, what they think about, uh, like, the positioning of these decks in the metagame. Think about the common interactions that you're running into. Like, uh, you know, I think that for a while in the most recent standard format, I was playing Sultai and it just felt like everyone had mystical disputes and most of my deck was really weak to mystical disputes. So I was like, you know, that's an interaction that is like keeping me down. The fact that that card is so present is making it so that my deck doesn't really feel very good. And in the same way, you know, like cycling is not very good when people are playing a bunch of Elspeth's Nightmares, right? So maybe if you're a cycling player and you start running into that card more and more, you're like, okay, well, like, that is that is what's happening to me that is, like, or, or that's the reaction the metagame's having to me existing, uh, and that's starting to pull, like, my deck to a worse positioning, just based on, like, the small stuff like that. I, I usually try to... Uh, just break it down to, to play patterns a lot, and that's something that, you know, there, there are cards that people will play, uh, especially in Standard. There'll just be cards people play to try to make one type of play pattern happen more often, or try to punish one common theme that's happening uh, in people's decks, and so uh, trying to identify which side of that interaction you're on and then being somewhere else. I, I think there was a Paul Rietzel tweet a long time ago probably like three or four years where he was like the if you want to win or you want to like pick a good deck look at what everyone else is doing and trying to interact with and then pick an entirely different axis to like fight on and you avoid getting hated out by all that stuff right so yeah just was... you know think about the things that are happening in your games like the the plays that are happening and if you like can't tell if it's you or like a card that you're playing or uh, you know, something else, it's a good time to get an outside perspective and see what other people are doing. Because if someone else is winning with a deck you're losing with a lot, maybe they're a better, like, rogues pilot than you and they're doing some things differently in matchups that you're losing, but they're winning. 
and you can learn a lot from them and how they're managing to win those. Yeah, 100%. I have a great example of what you talked about um, where a common interaction point in the Zendikar standard was two toughness. We had Bone Crusher Giant everywhere, and then we had Soaring Thought Thief everywhere, which admittedly in the early game didn't punish you as much as the Bone Crusher, but they did scale poorly into the late game against Rogues. And it was just very hard to play creatures that were X2s. Like, they were not allowed. They're kind of illegal. So if you're playing a deck, right, and you're kind of going to this format, you need to be paying attention to, like, what the points of interaction are and, like, where the crux in the turn... Like, the crux of games are happening in the turns where things matter and where things are vulnerable... And turn two, two twos and lower were just very weak and continued to be pretty weak. And they need to have some sort of insane value like uh, Edgewall Innkeeper with Thieves Guild Enforcer. Or have haste in a way to really get in damage instantly. Kind of like Soaring Thought Thief Flash is basically haste. But also, you know, uh, Brushfire Elemental had haste. And so you can look at those points and those things. And it's a really great way to kind of think about it and then adapt your deck to that. So it's like, okay, if my deck's really weak to Path to Exile and it's the most popular card in Modern. You know, it's in like 50% of decks or whatever probably try and play some hexproof creatures you know like try and pivot away or play a strategy that doesn't have creatures so uh, i love that retail quote and i think that's good that's probably also something abe real quick that we could probably do an episode on is like interaction points and kind of that sort of thing that might be a really fun one to do someday yeah i think it would be something maybe that's something we should do for like a, a patreon video like go and do an in-depth breakdown and like break down how you pick those things out because it really is like a lot of a lot of the stuff where you feel like you figured out something and you get a big edge out of what you know in a format comes from just understanding the play patterns really in and out, at least in my experience. Yeah. And so I remember Dromacus uh, knowing how to do that. that is huge. Yep, it's a big one. Which card? Dromacus Command Standard. I remember like it was a big level up moment for me where like they were playing the Esper Dragons deck and like that card was very good against like there, there wasn't a whole lot of removal in the Dromacus Command decks, right? And so you kind of blanked a card. Yeah. Obviously, that card could plus one, plus one always, no matter what. But that's not really what you want in your deck. So um, I remember that being a, a thing for me in the past. I was kind of that level at moment. But uh, thank you so much, Adrian, for that Patreon question. Hopefully that was helpful. Hopefully it helpful to other listeners as well. And we're actually going to be talking about deck selection today. So we're going to kind of go more into this. So if you felt like maybe we skipped something, it's probably because it's going to be as part of our main topic. Uh, so... We're talking about deck selection today for the show, and we kind of want to lay some groundwork because it's a pretty easy answer to a lot of this uh, for a lot of players. And if the, you want to play Magic to have fun and do whatever, I would pick the deck that you're going to have the most fun with and go from there. And just It doesn't really matter, you know? If you're just going to play your weekly modern tournaments or whatever, Inverter's going to be a fine deck. You're probably going to 2-2 at worst, you know, and that's fine. You maybe 4-oak some weekends. You're going to have a great time. That's what I plan to do here in a couple weeks, and... That's kind of, you know, a thing. But we're going to talk about this under the the lens of competitive magic tournaments and stuff like that. So I just wanted to lay it out there that, you know, we're not going to mention that sort of casual stuff. But if you're wanting to just play magic and have fun and there are other parts of the, your game you're trying to improve by listening to the show, uh, don't worry. Just pick a deck that's fun. You don't have to always min-max everything. But now that we've laid that groundwork, Abe... Where do you kind of start when it comes to the process of deck selection? And what do we mean by deck selection? Uh, when I, it comes to deck selection, which is, you know, you're just picking the deck that you think in that tournament is going to have the best win rate against the field you expect. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of its own, like, when we talk about metagaming, like, that is the whole game within the game of Magic, or, like, outside the game of Magic, where it's bigger than 
just the games of Magic you play against opponents. It's all of the decisions you make outside of those games of Magic to uh, to give yourself an edge in what you expect. Okay, awesome. So, you know, let's say we have a, a big tournament coming up. We have a Grand Prix. You know, we're we're pretty far in the future. We're excited to play our first Grand Prix back. Um, and we kind of looked at the metagame, and there's a deck that's just very, very good. It's, it's probably the best deck. You know, I think a good example of this might be, like, Hogak. Um, do you just... Should you just play the best deck? Should should that be the thing in a format kind of like Hogak? Um, yeah, there's a lot of things that I think can really change that answer. Like, it's not always absolutely correct to play the best deck. There's a lot of different philosophies I've heard from players who I really respect and, like, uh, who, who I've kind of, like, disagreed with in the past but come around to their thinking. But, uh, yeah, you know, like, if a deck is obviously the best deck and is just doing the best stuff, which I guess we'll get into what that means. Uh, I would usually, so long as you understand the mirror and you feel like you are going to be able to play it like very well, if you would like only have time to invest in one deck and pick it and play it and understand it, uh, you know, picking the one that is the best deck is the best deck for a reason. And you should, uh, you should do that. Yeah. I, I think that's true. How do you feel about this statement? This is kind of a controversial one that I kind of have with somebody, with some people sometimes, I should say. Um, and it's the best deck by a lot statement. So basically, you know, in Hogak, it was the best deck by a lot. You know, like all the data's kind of proven that, time shown it. We know that to be a definitive statement. But sometimes there's the best deck and it's, you know, better than other decks and it's very good. But it's not maybe the best deck by a margin. I, I think a good example of that um, is near the end of the Urza lifespan, right before Mox Opal got banned, uh, we saw, you know, Harlan Fear and Zach Allen kind of, and Drake Sasser, go to the SCGs and play this kind of Bant deck that was more Oko-focused, you know, less so Urza and Oko combining. And you kind of played, like, this Flash game with interaction and that sort of thing. And that deck was also very, very good and put up a lot of really great results across Modo and SCGs during that time. And that's an example I think of this is maybe not the best deck. Maybe it is. Maybe maybe it's, if we could have played forever, we'd have figured out it was. But it's really close. Should I play the deck that maybe is perceived slightly worse because I think it's better? And how do we go around that process, et cetera, et cetera? And what do you think about that statement? Uh, I think that, yeah, it's definitely like when you have a deck that's the best deck, That what that really means when you say that is that it has the best like matchup spread against the expected metagame, right? It means that you expect it to perform the best over like, you know, if it played against every deck you expect to play against over, you know, a thousand matches in playing against those decks in the same proportion that they're represented on Goldfish or whatever you're using as your data source, right? That it's going to come out with the most wins, like probabilistically. That's what you're saying. And that can be true either because the deck is just the only deck you should be playing and it's like memory jar or whatever right and like uh it's so good that playing anything else is a huge mistake or it can be the case that it's like the um i don't know there's like the team or energy standard where it was like that and then there was also an argument for playing like ramanap red and because of the existence of like the blue white approach deck like that kind of formed a triangle where playing it was just better to play the team or energy deck because none of the decks were like that good i guess uh i mean team was the best of them but you could play red or play this other deck and still do like 
fine in a in a tournament. You know, it wasn't like a terrible choice. Or like the Mardu vehicles, uh, Mardu vehicles four color Sahili format was similar too. Where it was like, yeah, you could play Mardu vehicles, and there was an argument that that was the best deck, and you should just play Mardu. But there's also an argument that four color was the best deck and was actually being slept on or whatever. You know, and so it depends on each deck's like own power level and how it lines up against the things you expect to play against. There's like, I don't know, a few times where uh, by the time a format has fully developed past like the first couple weeks, you start to see things like, oh, is Aetherworks Marvel the best deck or is it some deck with Spell Queller, right? Like, uh, it, it's, not, it's not always very clear that the best deck is the best deck by so much that you should just play it. I think there kind of like was, has been a big conception for a long time that that's just how it works because I think a lot of best decks were like that. But it's definitely not always correct. Yeah. Especially, I think if you have a lot of debate and stuff over it, uh, especially among like the, the highest levels of competition, there's probably some really good arguments and merit to being like, well, you can get away with this and it's fine. You know, like even if it's not like look back upon as the wrong thing. I honestly, and this is a moment for us to really kind of get in the weeds about this. I honestly have gone back and forth a lot on this over time. And I think it's really format dependent. And so I'm really hesitant to give listeners the wrong answer. But I can tell you this, <laughs> that back back in my day when I played Vanguard a bunch and I, and I was going to nationals, um, there was a deck that I was really, really good with. And there was another deck that was just very clearly the best deck. Uh, and it wasn't, I wasn't sure by enough. It wasn't like Hogak where it was so much better. But I remember hearing Jerry Thompson say, play whatever deck it was in the standard of that time. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And I thought about that statement a lot. And I, and I, and I think about it a lot, actually. As, as you know, time goes on. And is that true or not? And how do I feel about that? But I think there is something to be said about, like, you don't want to look back and realize that you made the wrong choice. So it's very easy to pick the best deck, right? We're like the quote unquote best deck. Cause you don't want to look back and be like, yeah, it was team of reclamation weekend. And I played Jun sacrifice. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to, you don't want to be yeah. caught in that, that sort of situation. Um, and so I, I'm kind of curious to have a conversation with you about this. Cause I, I'm unsure still, you know, like how exactly to go about it. I, I really have to feel it out for every format. There are times where I, I feel like I give the advice of, you know, don't be on the wrong side of history. And the other times where I tell people, Hey, like, you gotta take a chance. I think that deck's totally reasonable, um, and you should go for it. And kind of funny enough, you and I had this conversation. I got. I was about to say a couple of days ago, but I think it's been two or three months now. Time's flying. Uh, where we talked about <laughs> SCGs and opens, and we were talking about the leaderboard and whatnot. And when I was going into the weekends, um, trying to catch up to get placed so I could have buys for next year, or I guess this year technically, <laughs> that's how it worked out. But um. When I was doing that, my, my goal or my line, I should say, was always to play a reasonable deck. So it wasn't always to be on the right side of history, which is kind of a weird thing. It was kind of more like if I told, you know, Matt Dilks that I'm playing this deck, is he going to make fun of me? You know, behind my back or in, in person, you know, like, am I going to get made fun of? And I want the answer to be no. And it's not like a like a social thing. That's kind of a, a way to describe it to you all. But it's kind of like did Mason make a reasonable choice? Would others agree this is a reasonable choice? I didn't do something silly like play Niv-Magus combo, right? Like, I made reasonable deck choices that can compete at a tournament, and you would not be surprised to see them in top eight. And, I, and I've had success with both of these, you know? On the wrong side of history thing, I, I lost in the finals. It's my only loss in the whole weekend. And 
I, I've put up a lot of really good, strong, consistent results just playing strong, consistent decks, even if it's not the best deck all the time. So that's a really long statement, a lot to unpack, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, um, I I have a lot of thoughts about like best decks and stuff, but uh, before I get to those, I just want to share like I don't know, kind of similar anecdote to me about like the right or wrong side of history. Was there was this one weekend? It was um, SCG uh, Cleveland. Yeah, I, th- I think it was Cleveland, and I was like the morning of thinking between playing this dredge deck that I talked to Oliver Tomiko about a bunch, or playing like a humans list that I'd really workshopped and like felt really comfortable about like all the numbers and I really liked based off of like the moto lists and the data and stuff. And uh you know, it was like I could have lined myself up to be playing dredge and dredge was like busted and still had faithless looting at the time and this was like during phoenix and stuff and it's you know probably one of the best decks uh and humans was kind of like falling off at the time because it wasn't doing anything broken but it was actually pretty decently lined up against uh like arclight phoenix and and dredge if you were built to to consider it and a lot of the decks that people were playing to beat those. So, like, you were good against Jund, and you were good against, like, Black Green Rock, because Humans was was pretty favored in those matchups. Um, and it was a thing where, like, yeah, I could play what is, like, one of the best decks, but because at that time, the best decks were so close to each other, you know? Like, uh, there wasn't really much difference between playing Phoenix or Dredge if they were, you know, like, it, there were maybe a few, like, tenths of a percentage off in win rate at the time, and, like, humans was a little bit further off but still a tier one deck like it's hard to say that you shouldn't play that but then there are other times where you know should you be playing rally the ancestors at that time when it was literally just the best deck or should you be playing some three or four color mid-range pile because you like it and you like are just going to ignore the rally matchup basically like no you shouldn't do that just because the deck like seems fine and is in like one of the other quote-unquote playable decks it's so much worse um and it's really this, like, it, it, for me, it's a balancing act of these philosophies that I've kind of been, like, handed down from talking to, to players who I respect a lot. And one of them uh, is one that comes from uh, Jonathan Sekenik, where he was, like, a long time ago during, like, the fairies format, he had a conversation with someone uh, who he respected at the time where they were like, yeah, I mean, really, you should just be playing the best deck at that time, fairies. Uh, like you should be playing fairies and learning and understanding the mirror match because even if you don't really know every other matchup really well, it's the best deck for a reason. It's going to carry you out of those situations, right? Like your deck is just going to be better. And so that's going to get you some amount of the way. And when it's like that, it's really different than when the best deck is like, you know, Dredge or Arclight Phoenix. And I think about what, like some conversations I've had with Zach Keeney and Kellen Pastore. Zach Keeney, of course, was in Rivals uh, this year and pretty close to the top of the leaderboard on that. Uh, Kellen Pastor, um, like former Platinum Pro uh, before the MPL existed. And uh, like they believe like, you know, I ne- their, their philosophy is I never want to play a mirror match, right? Like they just don't want to be in a position where the deck that they're playing is one that, uh, one that they're going to have to play a mirror match every round because you lose so much potential for an edge there. And so really, when it comes down to it, when you're picking your deck, it's kind of a balancing act of those two, right? You need to know 
how much further ahead am I going to be in all the matches I play that aren't mirror matches versus the matches I'm like going to play that are when it comes when, when it comes down to it, at least when I think about it. And uh, it's never there's the answer isn't always the same, right? It's really subjective. It comes down to what's going on in the format around you and what exactly you're talking about. But, um, you know, knowing how to think about the problem, I think, uh, is almost more important than, you know, the, the definitive answer of what you land on personally of like, I'm just always going to play the best deck. I'm going to grind out all the mirror matches. I'm going to know what's going on. I'm going to innovate it, try to figure out how to like trump people in these matches. Or if you're someone who say, I like, I'm going to understand there's a best deck and pick something that I think attacks the format in a good angle and like kind of go rogue and beat all the people who are playing this deck, which is kind of what it feels like happened with that Oko Stoneforge deck that um, that team Nova had played towards the end of, uh, of Urza Standard versus just being someone who's playing Urza and losing to people who had solid plans for the Urza deck and knew what they were doing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It It is... I think, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I, and I do think about it a lot, and I think the correct answer is what you said there, where you kind of have to understand and know both thought processes and both kind of thinking behind these sort of things and the philosophy and whatnot to then kind of figure out in the moment what's right and know when to, you know, pull the trigger. And there, you know, there's the famous Andrew Ellenbogen quote of, like, being a good at magic is basically coming to conclusions with never having enough data, uh, and deck selection is one of the few things in Magic, I think, where we have a lot more data than on most situations. Just because often, especially with things preceded this best deck, you get a lot of games played, even though it's almost never really enough um, to have sort of definitive statements on. So I, I think that's super important. I do kind of want to touch on some of the things that you mentioned there. And I, I think that one thing that sometimes happens during these conversations is that people psych themselves out a little bit too much. Uh, especially when they think about things like the mirror match. And they're like, oh, I, I don't really know the mirror match. I don't have time to practice it. Da, 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 da. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Well, how, like, I can't play this deck. It's, it's, I just can't be playing mirrors all day. I just won't figure out the Hogak mirror. And it's kind of funny when you look back on all the data for all the best decks. In more recent years, we've gotten better at it as a community. But often, um, decks that are the best decks by a lot and known still don't make up more than 50% of the room. They're often 30 to 40%. And the most outlying example is actually Oko back at Pro Tour Eldraine. Abe, where it was 61% of the metagame if you combine Sultai and Blue-Green, which are very similar decks. You know, Sultai is splashing for yeah. a couple hate cards. But it's essentially the same deck. Um, and that's 61%. Basically, 40% of the room chose not to play the best deck by a country mile. And there's, there's reasons and thoughts for that, right? But I think that's really telling when you think about the sort of events you're going to go to and you're going to play at, right? Where if at the Pro Tour, where at the time, you know, it was still the Pro Tour, still well-respected, et cetera, et cetera, like people are incentivized to do really well. They want to compete. They want to win those things. And we saw, you know, people still not show up with the kind of the best decks as much. And I think that basically you need to be realistic about how many times you're going to actually play the mirror even if you're winning the tournament, you know, it, it's funny. Sometimes what people will say in response to this, Abe, is they'll be like, well, you know, that's all well and good till you get to the winner's metagame. And at the winner's metagame, you're going to play a lot more mirrors. And it's true, in theory, if it is the best deck by a lot, you will play a good amount of mirrors. But 15 rounds in a big tournament, you're going to play against any deck, you know, in a format like Modern, for example. 
once, maybe twice. And if you win the tournament, maybe three or four times, it was the best deck on the weekend on average. You just don't normally play against the same thing a whole bunch if the format's healthy. So I, I just think that that needs to be kind of talked about. Do you agree with that statement? I, that, I know that I have a lot of controversial opinions on this stuff. So I'm curious to see <laughs> where you fall on this stuff. Because sometimes I really get into people and they argue that's not the case. But uh, I think data yeah, says I it think, is. <laughs> so it's weird. Uh, <laughs> I think it's funny you bring up that Pro Tour. Because that Pro Tour, a couple of interesting thing happen, things happened. Where because the Oko deck was so much better than everything else. Like the Blue Green or Sultai oko decks um there was some weird stuff that happened where like uh i don't know people who weren't playing those decks obviously got eaten up because it was the best deck by a lot right like and and the deck kind of will carry you if you were just able to go like goose oko in just about any matchup um but also because everyone recognized that a lot of people decided to cop out and not not even really cop out is a really good choice right but like they decided to spend their time focusing on the mirror matches and and doing that um but there was that breakout like sacrifice build right mm -hmm. the the, the cauldron familiar deck yeah 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 and that deck was like oh this is actually the best win rate deck and is one is the only deck that really competes with uh with these food decks and you know that was something that came to be because they didn't say well you know we'll just focus our time on like playing oko decks and like winning with oko they said you know it, it's not gonna be that hard to figure out like a playable build of like the oko stuff i'm tired of playing these oko mirrors I, it's it, i'm not getting anything out of doing this and preparing i'm just going to you know try to beat it and if i come up with something that beats it then i might just crush it and they did um so you know like I don't know. And anecdotally for myself, like I remember the rally format very specifically for this, where Rally Ancestors was the best deck. Everyone I was talking to was saying it was the best deck. I was talking to like, I asked like Noah Walker what I should play. I asked my friend uh, Akash who I'd helped prepare for like a couple, like a pro tour, a couple of pro tours ago. Akash is point. a Valorant homie. Shout out to Akash. Yeah, yeah. Shout out <laughs> to Akash. Really a, a, a true, a, a wet dad at heart, uh, and only like him and I guess like ten other people know what that really means uh yeah but yeah like for a second that was that was extreme <laughs> yeah no but like that that was just like he told me to play rally he lent me the cards on moto to like practice a bunch and i showed up to the rptq the rptq where you would think that people would show up with the best deck and trying to win and i played a rally mirror once i was one of like three people in the event uh who was playing rally i played a rally player once for the invite um and, like, you know, a lot of people showed up with Ramp because it had, like, a decent rally matchup and was good against the mid-range decks. But a lot of people were just not going to engage with it and not going to play it and played all these other solutions rather than just playing what was far and away the best deck because they were intimidated by some aspect of it, be it the mirror matches or the play skill or, you know, just the, the difficulty of playing through hate. Um, the cost is well whatever. It's a really prohibitive factor for best decks. Like, that was, you know, at the time when the JVPs were, like, I mean, I don't know if that build played JVP, but cost p plays into these factors, right? Yeah. And I, I think too often people don't think about these factors, like you said, and they don't think about that stuff. And, and so they're like, oh, I, this sounds miserable. This weekend's going to be all, you know, Hogak mirrors or whatever, right? And it just almost never plays out like that. Very few people actually walk out of the room with that experience. It's one of the, the cool things yeah. about paper tournaments. <laughs> yeah, and, and 
I don't know, you can try to, I think it happens a lot less online where cards are a lot more easily accessible that like people get don't get priced out of decks, but uh I don't know, you always got to assume that you know, it, a best deck isn't going to be literally every round, but uh you know, it's going to be if you're trying to win the tournament, I would certainly expect that I'm going to have to play at least one mirror match against one competent player, right? Like, it, it doesn't feel uncommon to me that if the deck is that good, I'll play against it in top eight or top four if I make it that far, or even the finals. So, you know, knowing what you're doing is very important. Um, but also, it's it's not like you can just expect that you're literally going to play, you know... 15 mirrors at a Grand Prix before you get to top eight. <laughs> it's like, that's never how, how it works. Uh, you've always got to, got to be prepared. And I think that a lot of the, the wisdom that's been passed down from, you know, generations to generations of SCG grinders and GP grinders has always been to like, you know, expect the unexpected in a certain way and be prepared for anything. Choosing broad things for big fields uh, over really narrow things is, you know, like a, a good practice to have when you can afford it. Um, and and knowing knowing how to play out a game that is off the the beaten path of games that you've experienced before with a deck is also really important. And, that, and that's why experience, I think, really matters is because you know how to operate what is a, a complicated machine of of cards working together to be bigger than the sum of its parts. I, I agree 100%. Um, let's kind of talk about, though, how to know when to take the big chance. <laughs> you know, when I wrote this down, we were kind of thinking about it. It's kind of like, Abe, how do I know when to pull the trigger, though, on the risky deck? You know, because so far we've talked a lot about two things, right? We've talked about the best deck and, like, maybe the second best deck, you know? But there are some times where there's, like, a brew or a spicy pile. You know, I think of things like, the possibility storm deck in Pioneer at the Invitational weekend with Pioneer's first big tournament. There was a lot of buzz going into that tournament, like the day before, like oh, there's a Pioneer, there's a possibility storm deck. Maybe this thing's good, you know. How how do you know when to take those kind of shots? Because that's something that I think a lot of players struggle with, you know, and when to when to hold them and when to fold them. So uh, I don't know about you, Mason, but when it comes to making decisions like that, uh, it's a lot of how confident I feel about making that decision and like how much I'm willing to be wrong. Right. Like I'm going to take a risk. I need to be willing to lose. And also, you know, how much time have I put in to feeling assured that that is like a decision I should be, should be making like, uh, you know, if you are, I don't know, I think about Zach Allen because he played that Esper control deck and clowned me in that <laughs> Cleveland tournament I was talking about at 9-0 on, on the start of day two. But, uh, you know, if you're Zach Allen, you're, you were like, uh, I don't know, man, I don't want to play any of these decks. These all suck. I don't like playing Phoenix. I don't like playing uh, like humans. I don't like playing Dredge. I'm just going to try to build something that beats all those things. And so I'm going to build an Esper control and plays cards like, so I'm building Esper control. And he built Esper control and figured out all his plans and was like, yeah, I'm going to run it. And he's kind of a lunatic in that way. Because most people would never do something like that. It seems not sane. But Zach Allen uh, really is a lunatic. You're crazy, bud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, much respect, but yeah, crazy. yeah, yeah. Zach uh, knows I have a lot of respect for him, but man, you're you're crazy. You're wild, dude. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But you know, if you are someone who has put in a lot of time on like you know a standard idea you've had, like I, know, I bet the first person to play like the Naya Fury deck in the recent standard, like. 
you know, they were like, uh, I don't know, man, putting Unleashed Fury in my, uh, in my Naya deck seems kind of weird, but I'm trying it and it's feeling good and I'm winning with it and I like where I'm at in these matchups that I've played and I like, kind of like how it's playing out. Like, I'm going to take the risk and play it in this SCG or in this PTQ or whatever. It's like, you know, do you feel comfortable with it? Because ultimately, it is about making a good decision with imperfect information. And, uh, you know, you, you've really got to trust your gut and go with your experiences. I know that, like, Zan... Um, Another madman. <laughs> also a madman. He, at one point, it was before he lost the finals of GP Paris by missing, mul bricking multiple collected companies to lose. But he had, like, broken the format. And he was like... I had to be so sure I had broken the format. I was playing eight mans on Moto all day. And I, because those were the best place to like find competition at the time in this era of Moto. He was like, I'm playing eight mans all day and I'm winning all of them. I like haven't lost one in like, uh, like three days. I've like been triple queuing them, playing them for like eight hours a day. I can't lose. I invite my friends over. We're like talking through the games. I'm showing them what's going on. I'm winning and winning and winning. And he was like, so I bought a plane ticket to Paris. <laughs> to go play the GP because I was so confident that my deck was just beating everything. It was the best deck in the format for sure. And you're not, I don't expect anyone out there who listens to this. And if you do more power to you to go through that much work and that much process to determine that they have discovered the best deck or even to get, you know, be that fortunate and that bright to like figure it all out. Right. Um, and have that opportunity to feel that much confidence and have it work out like it did for him. But you know, I I don't think Zan would have gone if he didn't have all of that, uh, all of that data showing that he was beating everything, playing against players who were equally motivated as him for stakes. You know, like he had a ton of reps with the deck, knew exactly what he was doing, and knew how to beat everything, and it was working. So if you're if you're feeling like that is what's happening with you, you're playing a deck with it a lot, you're winning with it a lot, especially in places where people talk about they're losing a lot. And it feels like you're maybe doing something different or you're just not making a lot of mistakes you see other people make. Um, you know, then take a chance with a deck that other people are down on. Because, you know, if you never take those chances and risks, then you're never going to get the opportunity for the rewards of, of those risks. Yeah, the thing about this that kind of sticks out to me, and I, I like a lot of what you said there, is... I think about this, but on a card-by-card -card choice, and I think this happens a lot for sideboards. You know, people are like, oh, I don't know about this plan or these cards in that matchup. And that's kind of a small version of the deck selection thing, right? Like, if you're like, oh, I don't know how Infect is in this metagame, et cetera, et cetera, maybe there's some stuff. Infect is a deck that, you know, if you pick the right weekend and you play tight, it will reward you very well. Infect is very punishing to the things it's good against, and when played well is, you know very hard to beat and there's a lot of play to the deck even when you don't have good cards in your hand right so there's a lot to something like in fact and you, and you have to know when to take those shots and like Abe said you have to know and be okay with the fact that that shot might not pay off um, and you have to be willing to take that sort of chance on your tournament experience your tournament life as it were when you die in the game you die in real life of course it's how every meta tournament works yeah um, yeah <laughs> obviously and you have to be okay with that you have to be willing to take that sort of chance and that sort of risk for the tournament. And sometimes those things pay off in spades. Uh, and sometimes they don't. And it's a really a big learning process and trying to figure it out. But you have to be kind of confident. And hey, 
if you're really smart and you're someone who's thinking about stuff, you will probably learn something from your bad choices that will help infer you for future good choices. Excuse me, for future good choices. So I'd say go out there, hit the pavement, and do that sort of stuff. And uh, don't be just taking every, you know, 100 to 1 <laughs> odd chance you have. But, uh, you know, be willing to take a couple of bets and a couple of risks here and there. And that goes for in-game as well, for what it's worth. I think a lot of players are afraid to make risky plays, and they lose a lot of games that they're not going to win if they don't make those plays, but they're scared in the moment of losing a game. Um, the kind of the last thing I think that I want to talk about, I don't know how you feel about this, but how do you know and how do you go about picking a deck when everything's kind of even? You know what I mean? When like we have a really healthy metagame, it's really balanced, um, and all things are kind of squared up. Um, that is a good question. When things are like kind of static and kind of feeling the same, um, I have I have a couple of a couple of things that I'll do. So like this actually came up recently with the I played the Pioneer Challenge this weekend, which actually fired for once. Let's go. Uh, probably because of the showcase being like. 12 hours later or something but uh i hadn't played pioneer in a long time and i didn't know what's going on in the format so i asked uh asked my friend kellen uh i was like hey you keep up with the formats you know what people are playing what should i play in pioneer and he kind of knew better the format's kind of in this like big rock paper scissors deadlock and there's also not a lot of incentive to like really innovate so it's kind of going nowhere right now but he was like yeah you should play this deck it was a enigmatic incarnation deck which is pretty sweet he was like yeah like it can grind with the uh grind with the niv decks if you play against them it like never beats lotus field but like none of the good decks really beat lotus field anyway and (laughs) it like is like pretty good against these kinds of aggro and bad against these other kinds of aggro and like if you're just looking for something to play like, try this list out. And so I played it, and I, like, top 32, it was a lot of fun. Um, but if I was taking it more seriously, I probably would have... If I wasn't going to go to someone who I thought had an expertise on where the format's at right now, right? I would be picking a deck for the long term of, like, okay, I like... Because I feel comfortable with, I like playing decks that are like this, right? Or, like, I know the kinds of losses that I can stomach taking a lot more. Or, like, you know, if I'm someone who, like loves to play burn or like play the red deck, but hates it when like my opponent just has like an Omnath and gains a billion life and loses. If that's miserable for me, I'm not going to play the red deck because that's going to happen to me. But if I'm someone who like would much rather have it come down to, you know, uh, a sweat of whether or not I draw like my combo piece, or if it comes down to um, like me hitting off of a collected company in my spirits deck or something like that, you know, like you pick the games that, lead to things that are interesting to you and you, that you'll enjoy and that you'll understand how to navigate well and just optimize for you playing your best. Cause that's really like the only other edge left to be gotten. If all the decks are like equal against the field, then you should really be doing what will make it so that you are getting an edge over other people, which is probably going to be what makes you have the most fun doing it. Yeah. I, I agree with a lot of that. And I would say the thing I would add is, I would try to err on the side of consistency above all else. Um, you know, the format really is healthy and it really is pretty equal. And, you know, maybe there's something that's secretly a little bit better than the rest. I, I try to have the deck that's the most consistent and does its thing the most often. Because at that point, 
having non-functional draws becomes the thing that will hurt you the most. So if you're in a really healthy format, you might not want to play your three-card combo deck that's kind of hard to assemble. You know, maybe that's really good in an environment where spot removal isn't a thing, right? Where counter spells aren't really a thing. But in formats where things are healthy, you might just want to be like, hey, I just want to play as many real games of Magic as I can. And part of that is, you know, what Abe said about stomaching stuff, right? Like, I don't want to pick a deck that just gives up on me uh, and makes it so I can't play in this tournament when this tournament's kind of promoting fair, good magic, you know, or uh, equal playing field magic, I should say. So that's kind of my thoughts on it. Um, I think it's going to do yeah. it for here today, Abe. Is there anything you wanted to say to the listeners about deck selection before we wrap this up, or are you good to go? You've got this all locked in, and you picked your deck for today. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know if there's really much more to say other than, you know, if you're someone who's approaching a format, uh, there's, there's, it really depends as it always feels like comes back to, it depends on your goals. If your goals are to win and play the thing that's going to mathematically give you the best chances, then, you know, you've got a lot of studying to do and work to do and making sure that you know what you're doing with all the decks and blah, blah, blah. But if you're someone who, when I was talking about in the discord, I was like, when, paper things come back i might just want to cast my snapcaster mages in modern because they're awesome and i like doing it and so i want to do that in the best way i can because i like doing it you know like it really depends on your goals and what comes down to how you should pick a deck but um i don't know i just hope this gave you all of you who are trying to think about how to optimize picking the right deck for the right time in a tournament or in a metagame uh what to what to pick up and learn things to think about awesome yeah thank you Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to find me on Twitter, you can find me at Mason E. Clark. You can find me on Card Kingdom each and every Thursday writing about a topic. This week it's Modern Horizons 2, so head on over to Card Kingdom and check it out there. And you can find Abe on Twitter at More No Things. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you all next week for another episode of Constructed Cursing. <laughs>